Hey Kings Arms family, it's great to be speaking with you today. Sadly, not from not live at King's House, but recorded because three of uh, the members of my family, Caroline, Kyra and Ethan, have all tested positive for COVID. Currently, Caleb and I are negative, but because uh, of certain medical conditions, I've only had one vaccine, and so I uh, have got to self-isolate. So unfortunately, can't be with you live, which I'm really sad about, but able to speak um, uh, recorded, and hopefully it will still be a blessing. And as I was um, reflecting on this message, we're at continuing our series, What is the Church? I was uh, drawn to this story of a guy called Rick Norsigian, who's a picture here. He's a, a Canadian um, artist, a uh, commercial artist, and he was at a, gar a garage sale, early 2000s. He was in a garage sale, which is like the, the British car boot sale, but the, the equivalent over there, um, bigger. And uh, he was rummaging through some old boxes and found some glass plate photographs, like the photograph that he's holding up in this picture. And there were a couple of boxes of them. They were worth about $45. That's what the owner wanted for them. And so he, he bought them. He liked the photos. They were at Yosemite National Park. He liked the photos. So he, he bought these two, uh, pitch, these two boxes of pictures. As he got home, he thought maybe they're, maybe they're worth something. And he did a bit of research. And he felt that maybe they were missing pictures from a, a photographer, a very famous landscape photographer called Ansel Adams. He got some experts in to look at them and they agreed with him that these were in fact Ansel Adams' original photographs that had not been seen before. They estimate now that Rick Norsigian is going to earn around $25 million over the next, uh, 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 sorry, over, he's going to earn around $200 million over the next 25 years as he sells prints of these Ansel Adams pictures. I was drawn to that story and I felt the Lord speaking to me about the fact that that's how so many people see the church. They see the church as a, a bit kind of worn and battered around the edges and they just toss it away. They think, I've got just no time for this. I've got no place for this in my life anymore because they, they don't see its real value. But, but there are some, I felt the Lord saying, that, that, that see the church's value, that see how the designer, how the, the original artist saw it and seek to roll out their sleeves and make it what God intended it to, to be. I feel like there's an appeal from the Lord in our day. What are you going to do with the church? Because we can either toss it aside like a, you know, in the, in the garage sale of life, or we can roll our sleeves up. We can see the original vision of the church that we read about in the scriptures and we can choose to do something about it. So that's what we've been doing as a team of we talked to you about as a community. We've been looking back at the original scriptures and seeing what is the church? What is it really intended for? Where have we got it right? Where have we got it wrong? Let's look at the original vision of the church. And we're drawn again to this passage, Acts 2, 36 to 47, which was read last week and also hopefully before this message this week. You'll have heard it read again. A very famous passage that really is the early form of, of, of the church. It's the first picture of what we, what we see of the church that we recognize. You know, when Elon Musk launched the Cybertruck a couple of years ago. Everyone knew that wasn't exactly what it was going to look like. It was a prototype. It had all the elements of the Cybertruck that they were going to produce. The production model will come out next year. But the, the one that we saw in, those, in that uh, display was just the prototype. And it's like that in this passage in Acts. It's like this, this picture that we see in this um, passage gives us a, a prototype of what the church is meant to be. And in it, we see the elements in, of all the elements of, uh, of, an, of a church, a New Testament church community in its earliest form. And so we, we drew this image, which, uh, excuse my shoddy drawing, but we drew this image and, and laid out 12 points, 12 things that we see 
as core to what a New Testament church should look like. And, and last week, Phil unpacked the first four. So the fact that the reality is that a church is a community of worshippers on mission together who see Jesus as king and, and they're baptized and come into repentance and baptism as a response to his kingship and recognize that he is the one who's brought us into relationship with the, the Father and recognize that he is the one who fills us, empowers us with his Holy Spirit. Church is a community of people, not just doing things out of their own resources, but empowered by the Spirit and recognize that church is a community that gathers around his word and seeks to obey it, grace-filled obedience to his word. So that's what we looked at last week. And today I want to unpack the next four elements of this picture that we read in this passage in uh, Acts. So the fifth element is this, they follow God-appointed servant leadership. Acts 2 verse 37, uh, Peter, who's one of the earliest leaders in the church, says this, Peter's words, says this, Peter's words pierced their hearts. He'd just been speaking to a crowd of people who are gathering and uh, listening in to his message. His words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This passage speaks to us of how these early followers began to respond to God's appointed leadership. It was a, a leadership that God had put in, in place. And here we call them, uh, they're called apostles, but elsewhere they're called elders or overseers or shepherds. There's various names used and sometimes the, the same group of people is given different names. The, the point really is not the names. The point is the, the fact that God appoints leadership to lead his community forward. There's a, there's a few principles that we can draw out from this passage in this prototype form of the church. The first thing is this, it's team versus solo. Leaders are identified in team. Notice that there's a group of leaders identified here. Peter's identified with the others. And it's rare in the New Testament to see a lone leader. The, the leaders gather in groups and are appointed in groups, I believe, because it gives you strength. It gives you strength of gifting. It gives you strength of balance. It gives you strength of accountability across that leadership group. He puts leaders in teams. And we see this illustrated throughout the Bible, actually, not just the New Testament. And some, sometimes people even come to me and say, would you lead the king's arms? And I always say, well, well, no, I lead the team that leads the king's arms. And it feels a bit pedantic. And sometimes people are like, well, yes or no. But, but the reality is it's an important point that we don't have solo leadership, we have team leadership. In fact, we just we have a, a, a leadership teams, multiple leadership teams across the church who serve and lead us as a community forward. The second thing that stands out is that it's family, uh, not just corporate. It's the, the, the picture there is they respond to the leaders, they respond to Peter and the others, and they say, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? Right from the beginning, it's family language that's used. And there's a real danger in the church today that we can borrow leadership uh, lessons. And some of those are good from, from the business world or the corporate world. But, but sometimes we can go really badly wrong if we lean too heavily into those models. Because the, the New Testament leadership that we see is family, not corporate. And it's really important for us to remember that. It's not a top-down kind of hierarchy. It's a, it's a family leadership as we serve God together. It's brothers. There's a peer accountability there in this relationship. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 20 verse 25. He, he said this, Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers in this world lord it over people and officials uh, um, uh, flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it's to be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came, to be served, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for 
many. The model of leadership is 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 uh, family, and and the, and the last point is Jesus versus self. Notice Peter's response is to point people to Jesus. He doesn't say, "Okay, guys, now follow me." You know, we're on a mission together. They were called to to follow his leadership, but ultimately that was subserved to by Jesus's leadership. He points them first to Christ. He points them first to Jesus. It's Jesus rather than solo. God, godly leadership doesn't point to self. It points to Jesus. I heard of one church where the leader, you know, in a meeting slammed his fist on the table and said, we are the leaders. You do what we say. Our word is final. I mean, as soon as you get there, you, you honestly, you've lost it. You've lost the, the, the sense of godly leadership that God is wanting us to, to lead in, in the, in the church. There is a leadership authority, but that leadership is ex- exercised in humility, in submission to Christ. Leaders are meant to point people to Christ. As one of the earliest leaders, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. What this, all this means is that the leaders in church do have a responsibility to lead, but in a Christ-like way, in a, in a way that's submitted to the way that, that Jesus led. You might say, well, you know, that's all right for you, Simon. You know, you're a senior leader. You get to do what, whatever you want. Well, that isn't the reality. You know, I respond to the leadership that God has put into the church. So when I, you know, uh, speak at the youth, uh, with a, youth, a youth meeting, for example, I'm listening to what Owen and Lauren have got to say. And I'm asking them, what do you want me to do? And how long do you want me to speak for? And what do you want me to, to speak on? I'm respecting and responding to their leadership. When I do car parking, which I, I, I do every now and again on a Sunday morning, I'm looking to the team leader and saying, OK, where do you want me to where do you want me to serve? And some have been surprised by that. But for me, the re- recognition is that we all respond to the leadership that God God's put in the church and we work at God's church together. And the other thing that comes out of this is that when the church, uh, sometimes people say, well, the, uh, you know, I'm angry with the church or the church did this or that and, and I'm upset with the, the church. I'm always um, gently want to point them to the reality that, that the church didn't do anything. <laughs> the, the church is just made up of individuals. And, and I ask them, you know, who is it that's hurt you? Who is it? in the church because whenever you really honestly follow the church back to its source you find it's actually individuals either in the church you're in or in a previous church who've hurt you we all carry baggage from damage from leadership i do you do i'm sure we've all experienced bad leadership but when we push it all under the carpet of the church which the enemy wants us to do the problem is we can't forgive the church we can't deal with the church we can't be reconciled with the church all we can do is get bitter and resentful against the church and sadly many have got to that place and walked away from all churches not just the church that hurt them and the reality is that if we would just be honest with ourselves and realize it's actually individuals that hurt us sometimes leaders sometimes just members of the church or the community that we're part of when we get really honest then we can begin the process of forgiving from the heart and even leading towards reconciliation if that's possible the enemy wants us to put it all under the church and it's caused many to fall out because they, and some have even started to cry, well, let's get rid of leadership. The, the irony of that is those that are crying, let's get rid of all leadership, are, are actually expressing leadership by saying, let's get rid of leadership. No, the answer is not to get rid of leadership. Has there been leadership damage in churches? Absolutely. Absolutely there has. There's been abuse and all sorts of damage. That needs to be corrected. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be the, the voices of those who've been hurt need to be heard. But the the truth is this, we cannot get rid of leadership. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is that there's godly leadership expressed in submission to the way that Christ has led us. 
God is calling us to that. And it's never more important than today to express that kind of leadership. To follow God appointed servant leadership is part of what it means to be part of a New Testament church. And the sixth thing is this, to devote themselves to a culture of love. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. When you read this whole passage, you can feel the love and the concern and the care that they had for one another. And they use this word fellowship, which feels a bit outdated for us. You know, we, we never use the word fellowship apart from, uh, you know, when we're watching Lord of the Rings. That's the only time we ever use it. But it's a very rich word that speaks of community and love and loyalty wrapped up together. That's why it's used in the fellowship of the ring in Lord of the Rings, because it expresses a, a missional community that's that's that's. faithful and and courageous and working together and that's exactly what the church should be. This early church is described as being devoted to the fellowship and at King's Arms we try to draw a a picture of what that that love and that commitment looks like and we've described it as having a a culture, the culture that we want to have as a community as five main things as uh, being a culture of honour, a culture of, uh, of authenticity, a culture of acceptance a culture of generosity and a culture of courage. It's just a way of simply representing who we want to be as a community in ways that we can understand. It's one of the reasons I love the honour wall that we have online. Such a powerful picture of uh, how as a church we're to honour people and, and many people who are put up there haven't got a, uh, aren't up the front very often and you perhaps wouldn't even know what they do but we honour them publicly for all their con- they contribute behind the scenes very often to our church community. Living out of that culture is what makes the church so unique. And what I love about it is it's also a powerful way for us to reach and express who we are to the community around. So if you look at lots of uh, a number of websites on schools or businesses around our uh, community, you'll see culture statements look very, very similar to the ones you know of as part of King's Arms. And the reason that is, is that there's members who are of our community who are also in those businesses or schools who've sought to live out the culture to a such an extent it's been noticed. And people are wondering where they've, uh, where they've got this from and, and how do they shape a community and have learned from them and began to shape their businesses or schools accordingly. It's just powerful. Uh, one lady who came some years ago to our community, uh, to our church, on a, uh, and she got to, we got to know her over a few weeks. And she said, you know, I was wondering where my boss was he would, a few years ago, he started shaping our business to look very, very different to the way it is today. And, and he started talking about these culture statements and we've got them on our website. I was wondering where he was getting it all from and now I know. See, he'd been working out on the choir, showing them how to uh, love one another in a, in a way that perhaps led her to open herself to the journey of coming and exploring more of that, com- of that community. Notice it says it devoted them, they, it says they devoted themselves to this. It's not others forcing themselves, uh, forcing them to devote themselves, that that will be a cult. No, no, it's they devoted themselves. They, they willingly gave themselves to each other. The, the seventh thing is that they were a cross-centered family. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. In the big 
gathering at the temple and in the small gathering, there was a sense of real community based around the table, based around eating together. And, and this expression that's used here, breaking bread, would have represented the Lord's Supper, but not perhaps the way that we know communion, especially the way we're doing it right now with the little easy jet communion cups. No, you know, as a, around a meal, they would have eaten together and expressed their love and taken communion together, remembering the Lord's death and his resurrection in that, in that moment. Their churches would have been built around this community. Communion is when we do that. We remember that, that what Jesus did on a cross is the, is the great leveler, that, that we all stand together on level ground, that as part of that New Testament community, there would have been a slave and free and men and women and rich and poor. Uh, those who'd been uh, believers a long time and those are short, they would all have been leveled, as it were. They'd all have come uh, on the same level ground at the foot of the cross to take communion together, to remember that the thing that binds us together, the thing that unifies us, is not that we've got things in common, really. It's the fact that we all follow Christ, that we've all received his forgiveness, that we've all been transformed by his grace. That's what brings us this sense of great unity. Communion is a powerful place for that. It's a powerful place as we eat together and express that, that love. Many times as I've looked across our community, as we've taken communion together, I've seen uh, those very, very different backgrounds taking communion together. I've seen those even sometimes who've fallen out taking communion together as a way of reconciling together. And I've seen the powerful representation of the body of Christ in a unique way. It's what makes the church so unique that we are gathered together as a cross-centered family around the communion table. And the last uh, point that I want to draw out from this passage, the, the eighth point as it were, is that it's a community that worship and pray together. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the prayers in verse 47, praising God. This community was both practical, serving and caring for one another in radical ways, but it was also powerful in the sense that it was a spiritual, deeply spiritual community. You see this thread of worship and prayer right the way through this passage. Church is a community where we're devoted to prayer. That's what is one of the hallmarks of what a church is. We're devoted to prayer. We're devoted to worship together as a community. It's just what we do. It's not an optional extra for those who are super spiritual. It's what we do as a community together. We learn to pray and to worship together. One of the things I've learned in the last 18 months as I've studied the church around the world was this, the emphasis on praying together. One leader said to me, you'll never see a disciple-making movement. You've never seen a disciple-making movement in the world without first seeing a prayer movement. And I love all the way that some of these churches define extraordinary prayer. Because they believe we as the church are called to extraordinary prayer, but they define it in a very simple way. That extraordinary prayer comes as you take your ordinary prayer and add something extra to it. That's how you define extraordinary prayer. Take your ordinary prayer and add something extra to it. I love that definition. It's so releasing. It's so inspiring to just take our ordinary prayers and say, right, I want, I want to become an extraordinary prayer. I'm going to add something extra to my prayer life. And when that becomes ordinary, I'll add something extra again. So this last year, I've added a few extra things to my ordinary prayer. I've added prayer walking. I've prayer walked before, but never as 
systematically and rigorously as I've done it in the last last year. Obviously, I'm not doing it right now because I'm locked in, but I, I've been faithful to prayer walk and pray walk, prayer walked around the same streets where I live over and over again and praying for the people, praying for the houses and have a, a simple method of when I see someone, if they look friendly and want to want to stop, I just say hello and we talk about, you know, the weather or their dog or whatever we can talk about. And then as we finish, I just say, hey, look, I'm walking around the area and praying. Is there anything I can pray for you for? And just had some just some beautiful interactions with people as I've done that. Very simple way of engaging with the community and, and seeing, the, seeing the joy of uh, seeing people connecting with our church, even potentially as a result of my prayer. Someone who lived near here, we didn't really, didn't, I didn't really know her and she's now connected into our community. Another extra thing that I've added in is early morning prayer. So I, I, I've wanted to be part of an early morning prayer meeting for, for, for years, but never been able to organise the logistics of getting to King's House and all of that sort of stuff. But Actually, over Zoom, you know, we're all bored of Zoom, but one of the advantages of it at the moment is that it's taught us that, hey, you can do a pop-up prayer meeting, 30 minutes, no problem. I'm part of three now where I can just pop on for 30 minutes, pray with others about different subjects, about making disciples, about needs in our church and uh, about uh, the needs across our church or whatever it might be, and just pray for, for 30, 30 minutes. I've added something extra to my prayer life. Maybe that's something that you could think about, gathering a few friends every week or every other week just to pray for 30 minutes. Keep it focused. Zoom's brilliant for that. You can arrive and leave and uh, you can keep it focused around 30 minutes. If we, if we want to see it, be a community that that impacts the community that we serve becoming a, a community that doesn't just pray ordinary prayers but prays in an extraordinary way has got to be the next step for us as a church so that's the church that's a picture of what the church was then but i believe it's a picture of what the church should be today it's a community where we follow god appointed servant leaders we devote ourselves to a culture of love to a cross-centered family as we worship and pray together and next week Charlene's going to unpack the final four things in this passage and I just want to finish with these words just to to compel you to not be those uh, that cast aside the picture that God has painted here of the church chuck it out with the junk because it's a bit damaged it's a bit battered around the edges perhaps you've been even hurt but actually to be those who like uh, Rick at Norsigian actually see the divine image see the picture in those pictures see what God intended the church to be and roll up your sleeves and say okay there's there's vulnerabilities here how can I play my part okay there's weaknesses here how can I play my part how can I step in to make the church to make our church community all that it can be in God and we're we're as a team are really open to exploring and learning together in this uh, process what's the next step for you Jesus loved his church Jesus died for his church how is he calling you to serve his church, to get stuck in, to serve your brothers and sisters, to build yourself into this community? What's it look like for you as we emerge, as it were, from these last few, this last 18 months? What's the next step for you on this journey of discovering afresh what is the church? Thanks so much for listening. I'll leave it now to the team to do stuff live and to pray for you. God bless you. Thanks for your prayers for us as well as a family. And we'll see you soon.